Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Today's episode, we present to you our first dispatch of coverage from the 2014 Slow Money National Gathering, where local agriculturists and investors are dedicated to actively contemplating and changing where our food comes from, taking tangible steps to morph our current food acquisition, growing, and delivery system into a more sustainable, equitable, and in many ways, healthier environment. We've taken nearly 23 hours of the leading thinkers on creating a sustainable food system who were speaking at the 2014 Slow Money National Gathering and edited it down to just a few hours of the most important content for our podcast listeners to hear. In this first episode, we're going to hear Woody Tash talking about our money zooming around the planet, doing who knows what, and how to establish personal relationships with our financial capital. We're going to hear from Angel Divester, Marco Vangelisti. Then we're going to hear from Mary Berry, the director of the Berry Center and daughter of Wendell Berry, talking about the landscape of local agriculture and how the culture of food and farming reflects our broader cultural assumptions. That's in the first half of today's episode. Then we'll hear from Joel Salatin, who's going to talk about how to create a truthful farming system that's more fundamentally additive than extractive. You are listening to episode number 84 of The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Justin Ritchie, along with my co-host, Seth Moser-Katz. Let's jump right in and hear from Woody Tash. talking about a vision of investing that is less about minimizing risk and maximizing return for an investor and more about sharing risk between a farmer, a food entrepreneur, and an investor. Shared risk. You can see that right away, as soon as we begin peeling the onion of financial convention, we get into some very fundamental questions of economics and culture, language and intention. What does shared risk mean? So I want to give another kind of shout out to Douglas and Joel because they beautifully demonstrated last night the extent to which language matters. We need to explore new language if we're going to find our way to a new conversation and to healthier culture. I've had the great privilege of traveling around the country for the past five years since my book came out. I've learned and your presence here today confirms that there are many, many people who really are hungry for a new conversation. We are tired of our complicity in a broken system complicity that is reinforced every second of every day by our money zooming around the planet in ways that are so fast and so abstract 
and so complex that no one can fully understand it. Our money zooming around the planet to smokestacks in China and factory farms in Iowa and conflict mineral operations in Africa and who knows where else doing who knows what. Our money in hundreds of trillions of dollars of derivatives, even today after the Great Recession. The scope of these problems and the significance of the change that is required point to a new language and a new conversation and a new direction. Take the phrase slow money. Put the word slow in front of the word money and immediately very fundamental questions arise. There are many of them, but there are a few that are key, so I'm gonna repeat the three questions in the slow money principles. What would the world be like if we invested 50% of our money within 50 miles of where we live? That we could have an hour discussion just on, on any of these. What if there were a new generation of companies that gave away 50% of their profits? What if there were 50% more organic matter in our soil 50 years from now? These are questions about the relationship between finance and culture, between money and the soil, between the local and the fiduciary. They raise questions about a new vision of investing in the 21st century. I hope you've all by now seen this pamphlet, which is out on the table. It's called Common Sense for Post-Wall Street World, but I want to draw your attention to the sub-subtitle. A simple, pragmatic, and neighborly call to action for the age after... By the way, I, I should have Joel Salatin up here doing this. He would do it way better. A simple, pragmatic, and neighborly call to action for the age after rogue computer algorithms, CDOs, GMOs, high fructose corn syrup, food deserts, desert storms, and all those endowments, pension funds, mutual funds, and other ungodly, humongous institutional pools of capital that are about to discover conscientious investing saying no to oil and yes to soil. Well, I thought there'd be more laughter than applause, but that's, I'll go with the applause. Now we got the laughter, which is good. Laughter gets us out of the left side of our brains um, and to the right side of our brains and to our hearts so that we can feel the possibility of something very different. We can call this different thing slow money. We can call it conscientious investing. We can call it nurture capital. It's just fine that we use many different terms because what we are after is diversity, not just arithmetic diversification, but actual diversity, ecological, economic, and cultural diversity. So we must keep exploring new language that can point us in this new direction. Since we're in a particularly political moment with our midterms barely behind us, I feel compelled to say that my thinking about this new direction takes me away from political slogans and venomous TV ads paid for by warring politicians who are paid for by warring special interests. <laughs> We need nuanced, authentic conversation. Anything less is a form of violence, a form of intellectual violence. What we want is less violence, less warring special interests, less warring all the way around. Money, money that is too fast and financial institutions that are too big and securities that are too complex are embedded in and enable a culture that is rooted in violence. Not only the kinds of overt violence that confront us every day, I think we were all very aware of Joel's use of the term bioterrorism last night, he just kind of snuck that in there, but also the kind of everyday economic violence that is not as obvious, but is just as insidious and destructive. Violence of the virtual that draws our attention away from the places where we live. Violence of dumbed down political debate. Violence of chemicals and waste and eroded soil and eroded mining residues that are flowing down the Ohio River right outside these walls. 
violence of a food system that produces mountains of cheap calories, but also produces pandemics of obesity and diabetes. These are all the results of the violence of an economic system that puts seemingly impenetrable layers of complexity and intermediation between us and the things our money is financing. I was fortunate to get an op-ed piece in the Louisville paper a couple of days ago. I don't know how many of you saw it. It was right under a picture of Mitch McConnell on his re-election. I'm not kidding. It's a crazy placement. But the reason I'm bringing it up is, in the course of writing that, I wrote the following sentence. At some point, the pursuit of happiness must become the pursuit of non-cheapened food. I, I share this because writing that op-ed and writing these opening remarks and the conversations we're gonna have in this room over the next couple of days are a constant process of exploration, personal exploration and a collective exploration. So I was thinking about all of these issues, culture, language, thinking that investing is kind of the opposite of culture in many ways. It's about transactions, not relationships. And I thought, how many people in this room have heard the phrase elevator pitch? Most people, interesting. That's how far the investing culture has permeated the general culture. Everyone knows what an elevator pitch is. You know, you get 30 seconds, you gotta pitch yourself to the venture capitalist. So I thought, if we're going for culture instead of so much transactions, what would be the opposite of an elevator pitch? Anybody wanna guess what I came up with as the opposite to an elevator pitch? Someone actually got the answer. She said, she said a poem, but it's an elevator poem. So here we go. Now it's called Notes Towards a Slow Money Elevator Poem because I didn't have time to really get it to be an actual poem. Notes Towards a Slow Money Elevator Poem. Thank you for your understanding. One, oil fuels dollars, money fuels wars. Bombs make NPK. Earthworms scatter, finance becomes electronic chatter. Twinkies are not okay. <laughs> Two, there's this thing called soil that really isn't a thing at all, but rather a mysterious vessel in which agents of the God's goodwill can gather and disperse. Symbiosis comes here to undress. Imagination comes here to kiss decay. Reason and efficiency, shallow cost, relentless calculation, fiduciary intervention. All are muted here by humus and humility, impulse of root, percolation of intention, memory of mycorrhizae, mystery of time, the sweet, gentle insistence of a lunar day. Three, put a pitchfork in that elevator pitch. <laughs> there is a poem in them thar loam. Four, Wendell Berry settles all accounts. Let us love him now in no small amounts. Next up, we'll be hearing from Marco Vangelisti of Essential Knowledge for Transition, that's EK4T. You can find out more about his work at ek4t.com. Now here's Marco. You see, finance boils down everything to three variables when you're making decisions. What is the return? What is the liquidity? And what is the risk of the investment you're making? With the understanding that the higher the return, the better. The lower the risk, the better. And the higher the liquidity, the better. Liquidity is how fast you can convert that into cash. That's all you need to know to make an investment decision. The outcome is often this. 
what a waste. Whatever economic advantage was derived from this operation, it could not possibly have captured the true value of what we lost. Or you could say, what an injustice. Nature took thousands of years to build something like this. It's something that belongs to everybody and to future generations, but this common was privatized for the benefits of few people. But from a finance standpoint, if you bought this forest for $10 million and sold the lumber for $12 million, you would have gotten a 20% return. In fact, if you managed to do that transition in six months, you would have gotten a 40% return annualized, and in three months, an 80% return. Remember what I said, the higher the return, the better, and all you need to know is return, risk, and liquidity. And it was exactly this type of transformation that made me leave the finance industry. Basically, I worked for an investment management firm. We had $20 billion under management in emerging markets equity. And one of the best stock in our portfolio was a palm oil company that had destroyed tens of thousands of acres of rainforest. And that is when the cognitive dissonance between my personal values and what I was doing there with my job became too loud to ignore. Upton Sinclair said, it's very hard to make a man understand something if his salary depends on him not understanding it. But once you understand, you had to make a moral choice. And mine was to walk away from a very high paid job. And since then, I've been looking at these large systems, money banking, economics, and finance, how do they work? One thing that you need to know is that all investment capital originates through an expansion of the balance sheet of central banks around the world when they buy securities, usually government debt, and an expansion of the private banking sector when they make loans. So that's why right now there is an unprecedented level of debt outstanding both public and private around the world, while at the same time there is an unprecedented level of savings in the forms of investment capital scouring around the world for financial returns. And the two things are connected. This is the reality check and the big picture. And if I say something a little bit hard to take in, take a deep breath and let it out because you need to know how things work. First of all, it's an issue of scale. The world GDP a couple of years ago was $70 trillion. The liquid financial capital just in stock markets and bond markets around the world, $212 trillion, 300%. The GDP is called financial intensity. It has never been this high. And what about Derivatives instruments, have you heard about CDOs, credit default swaps, interest rate swaps? We issued about $1,200 trillion of those instruments a couple of years ago, and some of them, tranches of CDOs, ended up in money market mutual funds and caused the financial crisis of 2008. These numbers are not real. But I want to get a little bit more specific here and talk about possibly something that is in your portfolio. To do that, I need to do the terrifying carbon math. These are three numbers that are the most important numbers for us as a species. The first one is two degrees Celsius. You know what that means. We cannot warm the planet more than two degrees Celsius from pre-industrial levels. Why not? 
because at that point, global ecosystems will start to unravel to the point where they can no longer support higher forms of life. So then we know we're warming up the planet by putting carbon into the atmosphere. How much carbon can we put in the atmosphere? 500 gigatons, a very large number, but at current emission patterns, will be there between 12 and 14 years. So it's not that far. But the most important question is how much carbon do we have in the known reserves of the fossil fuel companies? And the answer is 2,800 gigatons. The human species has not wrapped its head around these three numbers. Because if we had, we would stop all deep ocean drilling for oil, we would stop all mountaintop removal for coal, and all extraction of tar oil sands. Because we have to leave 80% of all the carbon we know of in the ground. And here I'm tying it into possibly your portfolio. These are the six largest oil companies in the world. Their capitalization is in the hundreds of billions of dollars. The market is not getting this right. The market has not factored the fact that 80% of the carbon needs to remain unsold and in the ground. And when that happens, this market capitalizations will be in the tens of billions, not in the hundreds of billions. And if you look, and if you have a well-diversified portfolio, I'll guarantee you, you have these puppies in your portfolio. And they're not worth what the market thinks they're worth right now. One more piece of information. I mentioned about this huge pool of investment capital scouring around the world for investment returns. And there was a very important study that came out two years ago, sponsored by the UN. This is for a group called the Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity, and basically applied environmental economics principles to quantify the financial cost of goods that nature provides for free. I don't know if you noticed, but Nature has not charged us for soil, has not charged us for water, has not charged us for the wood in the forests, right? And so they looked at ecosystem services from land and from water, and they also looked at the cost of pollution, because nature actually tries to absorb some of our waste, and that's a service. And so the cost of greenhouse gas emission, air pollution, land and water pollution, and waste. And what the study did is a 15-year studies that said how much are the services worth? Services that we do not pay but use. And they looked at something called region sectors. These are economic activity in a very large scale. So for example, coal power generation in Eastern Asia or cattle ranching in Latin America. And I'm gonna just zoom in one of this because I know they're pretty small. So, Cattle ranching and farming in South America used in 2009 $312 billion of unpriced natural capital to generate $16.6 billion worth of revenues. Not profits, revenues. Mostly selling meat to fast food companies. And if you look at the entire economic activity worldwide, we're talking about 7.3 trillion dollars of unpriced natural capital that we've been using to generate the economic activity worldwide. What we're doing here, I don't know if you notice, we are treating nature as a business in liquidation, and we are subsidizing with its assets our economic activity, 
and our financial returns. Most of the financial returns of that $212 trillion of capital that is looking for financial returns is subsidized by the natural capital. So here we come to a little cartoon. You can imagine a couple of years out. Yes, the planet got destroyed. But for a beautiful moment in time, we created a lot of value for shareholders. I think we are right in this moment doing that, and we have to pay attention to it. And if you get one thing out of my talk, one thing is this, that the investments that we make today are not happening on a separate planet where only the financial returns are repatriated to us. The investments we are making today are shaping the world we are living in. And for that, I want to introduce you to this really cute creature called a tardigrade. They are unbelievably resilient. They can be completely dried up for decades. And then you drop them in water, and after 15 minutes, they move again. And while they are dry, you can bombard them with 2,500 times the radiation that would kill us. And they've been found alive and quite happy at temperature between minus 50 degrees and plus 300 degrees Fahrenheit. Why am I saying this? Because if you happen to be a tardigrade, then your investment portfolio is creating the conditions in which you will have a very comfortable retirement. <laughs> but if you are not a tardigrade, you really need to pay attention to what are your investments doing besides generating the financial returns for you. And of course, at a certain point, I realized I was not a tardigrade. And so the first thing I did when I realized that was to liquidate my entire portfolio. And when people say, oh, it's so hard to do that, no, it's super easy. It took me five minutes. Sell, sell, sell. <laughs> Done. Now, the problem is, yeah, thank you, thank you. I've been called an angel divester. But you see, the problem is what you do now with this cash, right? And what I realized is that you see return, liquidity, and risk express two underlying psychological factors. One is greed, and the other one is fear. And I ask myself, what if my portfolio were built in a way that expressed different psychological motivations? What if I build a portfolio that express biophilia and empathy? Where return, liquidity, and risk considerations are secondary to the process. And I can report that now my portfolio expresses that. And I love it. I know exactly what my money is doing. And what I want you to understand is that after looking at the big systems, I came to the conclusion that the existential challenge for this generation, and most specifically for the people in that generation that has financial resources, is to finally take responsibility for our agency in the world expressed through our investments. And that we need to divest from the economic system and financial system that are pushing us towards a disaster, both socially and environmentally. 
They are connected to our investments. We need to mobilize not 1%, not 10%, but 100% of our financial resources to build the world we want to live in. When we are divesting from the suicide economy and investing in the economy we want to see. Thank you for being part of it. Next up, we hear from Mary Berry, the executive director of the Berry Center, talking about life in rural America, life on America's farms, and the challenges faced by farmers. For those of us living in rural America, it is clear that our present economic assumptions are failing in agriculture. And to those who have eyes to see, the evidence is everywhere, in the cities as well as in the countryside. 16% of us live in rural places, and of those 16%, so few of us farm that we are not counted on the U.S. Census. In Kentucky, it has been 10 years since the end of the tobacco program. As of a couple of months ago, I was still saying that we had 84,000 small farms in our state. The 2012 Ag Census says that we have 77,000 farms and are leading the nation in the loss of farmland. In the time leading up to the end of the tobacco program, Kentucky farmers were bombarded with news articles explaining why the tobacco program should be abolished and how Kentucky farmers would be better off without it. Our then governor called it a Depression-era farm program. Our state's largest farm lobby said that Kentucky farmers could outcompete anyone. But all such talk ended when the program ended. And as far as I know, the matter has not been revisited to see if the claims and promises match the realities at home. The reality is that our small communities have not recovered. Our town no longer has a grocery store. The local tractor dealership went out of business last year. Our county government is broke. Our schools can't afford to buy books and our farm is the last working farm on our road. The countryside that is still being farmed is often being badly farmed. Our part of Kentucky is rolling and well-suited for livestock on permanent pasture and for hay crops, perennial agriculture. That fragile landscape is plowed up and the resulting toxicity and erosion is a barely talked about disaster. What does all of this mean in the face of, according to a demand study done in Louisville in 2012, five times the demand for local food than we have supply? Well, it means that the urban demand for sustainably raised local food going up has met the rural culture coming down. It was bound to happen. It means that generational farmers whose interest in growing food for local markets was peaked as a result of efforts to move beyond a tobacco economy in the 90s, but have given up on a market they don't understand and have no reason to trust. In short, the excitement about locally raised food in the cities is not matched in the countryside. It means that the singular demand for production in our modern industrial agriculture has been unable to acknowledge the importance of the sources of production in nature and in human culture. Of course, agriculture must be productive. That requirement is as urgent as it is obvious. 
but urgent as it is, it is not the first requirement. There are two more requirements equally important and equally urgent. One is that if agriculture is to remain productive, it must preserve the land and the fertility and the ecological health of the land. The land, that is, must be used well. A further requirement, therefore, is that if the land is to be used well, the people who use it must know it well, must be highly motivated to use it well, must know how to use it well, must have time to use it well, and must be able to afford to use it well. Nothing that has happened in the agricultural revolution of the last 50 years has disproved or invalidated these requirements, though everything that has happened has ignored or defied them. For a time, and in my memory, the farming in my home country was profitable and diversified. Farmers, because of the program I described earlier, were out of an emergency. I grew up working with people who didn't consider their crop in until everyone's crop was in. This was an agrarian community, the kind that we must see again, this time not dependent on a harmful crop. I think often of this quotation from Brent Smith's editorial in the New York Times, quote, the dirty little secret of the food movement is that the much celebrated small-scale farmer isn't making a living, unquote. Food is a cultural product, and the food most Americans are eating today reflects the culture that we are living in. To deal correctly with the problems I am talking about, we must first of all be content or try to be with the notion of small solutions. We must also be content or try to be with the apparent slowness of our work. If we move too quickly or are quick to accept large solutions, we will be following the example of the industrial mind, a mind that has accepted the official quasi-religious litany of synonyms, labor-saving, efficiency, progress, convenience, speed, and comfort. I believe that the only way to save farmland and farm people is a good farm economy. If farmers and consumers wish to promote a sustainable, safe, reasonably inexpensive supply of good food, then we must see that the best, the safest, and most dependable source of food for a city is not the global economy, with its extreme vulnerabilities and extravagant transportation costs, but its own surrounding countryside. It is, in every way, in the best interest of urban consumers to be surrounded by productive land, well-farmed and well-maintained by thriving farm families in thriving farm communities. We have a bipolar food system. On the one side, we have small and entrepreneurial. On the other, huge and industrial, with not much in the middle. I believe that farmers will look again with interest at raising for a local market if they are offered some kind of economy that they can trust, that they can plan an economic year around. I think the producers program offers us the best model for that to happen, and I think it will not be a federal or state program. I think it will be city to city. As we have found in Louisville, we can work with city government. The mayor of Louisville still has local affections and knows what we're talking about. If we agree that food is a cultural product, then we must agree that our culture needs to change. It seems to me that slow money is asking us to think about our whole economy, not just pieces, in order to become a land-conserving economy. I spoke of the Burley Tobacco Program and its idea of parity a minute ago. It is useful here to quote my grandfather, John Barry Sr. This is a quotation from a speech he gave to Congress on April 20, 1948. Quote, 
The parity concept is the happiest and most fortunate thought that has visited the minds of statesmen of this country in generations. It accords with our way of life and gives real and tangible meaning to the philosophy of equal opportunity. It is a consistent American way of striving for and approaching parity of income without the use of direct subsidy payments by the government. It must be preserved and effectuated to the end that farmers may continue to enjoy the high standard of living and opportunity which they have had only a taste of." Unquote. But what did parity mean to my grandfather? The farmers that my grandfather served all his life were shaped by the Great Depression and the Jeffersonian ideal of the small landholder as the most precious part of a state. When he talked about parity, he was talking about a farm population who was still self-sufficient and who used and reused everything. If some of us think that working on an economy based on cooperation, not competition, is a good idea, then we have to talk about non-economic intangibles such as neighborly work and love, affection and thrift, non-economic terms that turn out to have economic consequences. It seems wrong to me to talk about economies and leave out these issues, and so to illustrate, I will quote from two men. One man I know very well, and one who is fictional. The first is my husband. He's the real one. <laughs> I have on occasion in my life wondered what it would be like to have a fictional husband, but not right now. My husband's name is Steve Smith. He had the first CSA in Kentucky. He started it in 1990 and ran it for 15 years before passing his list and his help down to a younger farmer. The CSA enabled him to pay off his farm at 13% interest. He wrote a piece called What Young Farmers Need to Know and gave it at St. Catherine College where the Berry Center's farming program is. He ended his piece with this list. One. We have substituted fossil fuels for knowledge, and now farmers are cut off from the information we need most, how to build and maintain healthy soil. Two, most of the information given to farmers these days is sales talk. We must stop looking for store-bought solutions and use what is free and at hand, animal manure, compost, cover crops, crop rotations, genetic diversity, seed saving, natural systems and cycles, husbandry, thrift, frugality, local economy, local communities. Three, we must rethink the way we market our crops, adding value to them when and where we can. Forming relationships with your buyers is the simplest, easiest way to do this. By allowing your customers to get to know you through CSAs, farmers markets, direct marketing, and so forth, you add value to your farm products and strengthen the local economy. Six, if you can clear $6,000 an acre, how many acres do you really need? Not that many. By using small-scale technology, low-cost and no-cost techniques, there is no need to borrow a lot of money and lots of reasons not to. The most important being, if you go too deep into debt, neither you nor your land will have the last say. Five, it is not simple. The details of the farming operation need to be written down on paper, just a working set of plans that include budgets, crop rotations, seed varieties, planting dates, harvest schedules, buyers, markets, and so forth. The market plan will require the most work. Remember, do your marketing before you do your planting. Six. Farmers need to know that we have very few friends in high places. The global economy does not have our best interest at heart. 
Agribusiness corporations do not have our best interest at heart. We must therefore look to those who do, our friends and neighbors, our local communities and local economies. The second list is a pretty good complement to the first. It is from a story of daddy's called The Branch Way of Doing. It is a story of the Port William membership. The character Andy Catlett is observing his friend Danny Branch and his family. Quote, he believes that the way they live and the way they are can be summed up, not explained, by a set of economic principles, things Danny could have told his children but probably never did or needed to. Andy, anyhow, after many years of observing and pondering, has made a list of instructions that he hears in Danny's voice, whether or not Danny can be supposed ever to have said them. One, be happy with what you've got. Don't be always looking for something better. Two, don't buy anything you don't need. Three, don't buy what you ought to save. Don't buy what you ought to make. Four, unless you absolutely have got to do it, don't buy anything new. Five, if somebody tries to sell you something to save labor, look out. If you can work, then work. If other people want to buy a lot of new stuff and fill up the country with junk, use the junk. <laughs> Seven, some good things are cheap, even free. Use them first. Eight, keep watch for what nobody wants. Sort through the leavings. Nine, you might know or find out what it is to need help, so help people. At the Berry Center, we are on the side of the farmer. These two lists combined seem to me the soundest advice for anyone, but especially the young, who take up the work of a sounder, healthier local agriculture. And excellent advice for those of us who want to work on a culture who will support them. I recently gave a talk called Institutionalizing the Work of a Self-Described Crank and the Kindest of Fathers. Did I mention that my father's name is Wendell Berry? Possibly I didn't. My father calls himself a crank and is one when it comes to some things. Anything with a screen, speedboats, the fact that people have freed themselves of physical work and now go to fitness centers, the idea of a vacation, shopping, and so on. All this is often pretty funny, and Daddy is often pretty amused with himself. And he could hardly help being a crank. He comes from generations of them, funny, charming cranks. I have given that word a lot of thought, and I'm thinking now that we would all do well to be a little cranky. Not unkind or harsh, just cranky. To keep ourselves honest, we must first make sure that we understand that we are all implicit in the mess we're in. My friend Wes Jackson says that if we come out of all this effort to make things better with a bunch of squiggly light bulbs and Priuses, we won't have done much. <laughs> In the latest issue of The New Yorker, there's a cartoon of a couple eating dinner. The man says to the woman, did this come from the community garden? It tastes sanctimonious. <laughs> but I think we must agree that some crankiness is called for. One of the worst traits in people is that we can get used to anything, and that is what we have done. And we have let people call what has happened to our farms and farmers inevitable. So if crankiness is what brings about an effort like slow money, tilth, American Farmland Trust, or Kentucky's Community Farm Alliance, or the many save our land, farms, forests, families, etc., then count me in. I am proud to join you all and my family in an alliance of cranks. Thank you. 
Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Slow Money 2014. This is the largest slow money event since the start of this organization. Don't waste it on just anyone. And we're bringing together some of the best communicators about food issues on the entire planet. I want you to imagine that I walk up to you on the street. You've never seen me before. I tell you to close your eyes because I'm gonna put something in your mouth. That's our food system. And every bite we take of the food that we buy comes from people, in most cases, that we don't know. And the ingredients in that food is of unknown origin because our food system is entirely opaque. I'm with Michael Pollan, you know, we probably shouldn't be eating anything that wasn't available before 1900. And, and we, we can all be thankful that hot dogs were developed in 1890 at the 1890 World's Fair. <laughs> we need to have the freedom to be able to choose the food of our choice from the source of our choice. And if we had that, if we had a food emancipation proclamation in this country, in short order, all of us would put Tyson's out of business in a heartbeat. That's the truth. Over these next two days, more than 800 people will be attending this, this conference from 46 states and two foreign countries. I work at the Schumacher Center for New Economics in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. Omaha, Nebraska. Central California. Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a first-generation farmer from Lawrence, Kansas. I'm originally from India. Homegrown tomato, barn raised, planted in bluegrass soil. Can't get no more Louisville, Kentucky than me, I say. We are tired of our complicity in a broken system. Complicity that is reinforced every second of every day by our money zooming around the planet, doing who knows what. Put the word slow in front of the word money and immediately very fundamental questions arise. What would the world be like if we invested 50% of our money within 50 miles of where we live? What if there were a new generation of companies that gave away 50% of their profits? What if there were 50% more organic matter in our soil 50 years from now? You see yourself In scraps and odds and ends But I can't even begin To tell you how I see you You're listening to episode number 84 of The Extra Environmentalist. You just heard a brief recap of our Slow Money mini-doc. Check out the Slow Money YouTube channel for the entire video. We'll include a link in the show notes. Next up is Joel Salatin, founder of Polyface Farms. You stand to make amends And carry these to a new place again It's where my heart goes There my hand falls We don't talk about truth much anymore. Everything is a sound bite. You know, as a wordsmith, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to capture more meaning out of words and what are they. And so I'd like to go through what I call these benchmarks of truth 
to help us all understand and articulate the commonalities, what's common about a truthful food system or a truthful farming system. So here we go. Here we go. Bear with me here. Number one, it should build carbon. Does it build soil or deplete soil? Does it actually build carbon or deplete carbon? How do we deplete carbon? Well, we do it primarily with tillage. We do it with annuals. Nature's system to build carbon is using perennials. So obviously a truthful food and farming system should be one that's primarily pushing us, uh, pushing, I'm not saying annuals are wrong, I'm just saying pushing us toward perennials rather than annuals. And you realize that the whole U.S. duh, I don't have the respect to call it the USDA, I call it U.S. duh. Um, <laughs> That the whole USDA, I can't even say it, um, crop insurance and subsidy program helps to create unfair advantages for six crops, all of which are annuals, not perennials. You realize how untruthful the very predication of our system is, that it's predicated on a carbon depleting system. Historically, carbon was always built with perennials and we're still mining perennials. It's very dear to my heart because I know that our farm 400 years ago had three more feet of topsoil on it than it does today. And when we came, we didn't even have enough soil in 1961 to hold up electric fence stakes. So dad had to pour concrete in car tires. And we and my brother and I were little kids. We would put electric fence stakes down in them. That's how we made electric fence, because we didn't have enough soil to hold up electric fence stakes. Carbon building requires integrated systems, not segregated systems. Today, we send our troops to the Middle East to get cheap fuel so we can make cheap fertilizer over here to fertilize the ground over here that's growing grain from over here, run with machines that are made over here to grow grain to feed cows that are over here so their manure can go over there and the meat can be processed over here to be shipped over there so the people can eat it over here and their poop goes somewhere else too. I mean, the whole thing... The whole thing is completely segregated rather than integrated. And so when we look at carbon building systems, they're always assuming integrated, not segregated, closed loop cycles, on-site cycling, where these things move around on-site. Think about another carbon building system is pruning. You know, keep carbon young and vibrant. Don't let carbon get old and diseased and go up in fire. Cut diseased and old trees and use it for lumber or chip it into chips for compost. We can eliminate fire by doing carbon-centric composting. We can graze the grass. The pruning is like pruning a vineyard, what we call on our farm, we call mob stocking, herbivorous solar conversion, lignified carbon sequestration, fertilization. And... <laughs> And on our farm since 1961, we've gone from an average of 1% organic matter to today an average of 8% organic matter. All we have to do nationwide is increase 1% organic matter. We've gone from 1 to 8, but all we have to do is increase 1% and we would sequester all the carbon that's been submitted during the beginning of the industrial age. So it's not that difficult, but it does mean we have to build carbon and pruning with grazing, with good forestry practices to keep good, vibrant, young biomass going where it doesn't go into senescence is critical to build carbon. I understand that some of these things of, of grazing and cutting trees and that sort of thing can make some of us get a little bit apoplectic. 
But the fact is that we have to participate. You see, I get that today, you know, we have this burden on our back, you know, this big burden of, it's called guilt from where we've pillaged and raped and been conquistadors civilizationally for a long time. The study of civilization is the study of soil depletion, carbon depletion. As Sir Albert Howard said, it's the temptation of every generation to take what nature took a thousand years to build and turn it into cash in one generation. And so I get the guilt, but the answer is not to say, oh, I'm so sorry about this that we'll just abandon nature. You know, it's too sacred to touch. And so the only way to integrate my life with nature is to lock it up in parks and and wilderness areas and make sure that it never gets desecrated by human breath. I propose something different. I propose a participatory remediation where we take our big brains and opposing thumbs and we bring our intellectual and mechanical ability to our ecological womb as a masseuse (laughs) to remediate all of the pillaging, the rape and the death and the destruction that our ancestors have done. So the strategic use of even something like petroleum for chipping to make composting, for building dams, for hydrating the landscape, for turning plastic into solariums for the south side of every single house and building in the northern hemisphere. Those kinds of things would be a proper use of this bonanza of petroleum to leave a legacy of remediation and healed planet for our children. Number two, (laughs) all right, number two, child-friendly. A truthful farm, a truthful food system should be one that is inviting to children. It doesn't take much time on a Tyson chicken farm or a Smithfield hog factory now owned by the Chinese to realize that it's not a child-friendly place. Child-friendly places are transparent, they're open, they're, they're shareable. They're what I call aesthetically and aromatically sensually romantic. <laughs> I was in Australia recently and I visited a farm and I saw this sign, it looked like a no trespassing sign. Industrial farms are famous for their razor wire and no trespassing signs. I mean, if you've got to put on a hazmat suit and walk through sheep dip to go visit your food, you might not want to eat it. But anyway, I walked into this farm and it had like a no trespassing sign, but I got close and I looked and it, it was not a no trespassing sign. The sign said, trespassers will be impressed. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. So our farm should be friendly for visitors to participate and learn. A benchmark of truth is that a farm should be an inviting place for visitors to come. We have a 24-7, 365 open door policy on our farm. Some of you know my politics, know that I'm a Christian, libertarian, environmentalist, capitalist, lunatic farmer. And so my, my libertarianism makes me not want a bunch of regulations, but what I'm willing to give in exchange is 24-7, 365 transparency and open door policy for anyone from the world at any time to come and see anything, anytime, anywhere unannounced. That's my commitment to transparency. Now, if you come at two o'clock, don't wake me up. Go on and look. That's fine. (laughs) 
child friendly for farm kids. You know, the first job in chicken factory farms, the first job for kids as they get eight, nine, 10 years old is the dead walk. Go through the house and pick up all the dead chickens. Boy, isn't that an emotionally enjoyable job? And of course, your friends come out from school and they're all walking around and it stinks around here. It should be exciting. It should be child-friendly emotionally, an enjoyable place, not embarrassing, not where when you take your school friends around your farm or your little buddies, you know, you've got to apologize for this and that and apologize for this stink and that ugly sight and all that. It should be child-friendly economically, growing salaries, stacking entrepreneurial enterprises on that farm so that we can actually create salaries for farms and we grow from the inside out. You know, the average child grows up, wants to farm coveting the neighbor's land and to expand the orchard or expand the dairy or expand the vegetable production or whatever. And what I'm suggesting is that using stacking and synergistic enterprises, we should be able to grow those additional salaries from the inside out on the existing land base and free up our children from covetousness. It should be child-friendly ecologically. A farm should be child-friendly ecologically to be a place of mystery, beauty, and awesomeness where you go around the corner and there's, and there's a wild duck on a clutch of eggs and, and it's a place of mystery and beauty and, and ahas. It should be a place where it's as easy for kids to do meaningful work as it is for adults, where kids can be productive and not kept isolated from the poison room and the lagoon and the places that kill children routinely. It should be a place that kids can have free roam and free reign and not be afraid they're going to get overcome by something. Number three, benchmark of truth, being honoring. Being honoring. Yes, I'll say it. It does matter if we promote the pigness of pigs. What I'm suggesting here is that a benchmark of truth is when you walk onto that farm, does it look like the life beings on that farm, from the tomato plants to the carrots to the pigs to the farm and their family, does it look like the workers from the bees to the clover are being self-actualized to actually express the full distinctive capacity of their gifts and talents. That's being honoring. You see, we live in a time where the question of does it matter if pigness of pigs occurs is not even asked. The only question is, can we grow them faster, fatter, bigger, cheaper? And we all know that that's not a good goal because you know, that's why the average NFL football player is dead at 57. When your neck is bigger than your head, you're a freak of nature and nature weeds you out. For, for us, this even filters into how we interact with people on the farm. So we don't want wages. We don't like wages where you just, you know, punch a time clock and you just get paid so much per hour. Rather, what we're creating are instead of employees, we're creating fiefdoms. Doesn't everybody want a fiefdom? Everybody want to be the lord of their castle? Sure. And so the point is that rather than bringing on team players, 
co-laborers that are employees. Instead, they create their own business plans. They create their own fiefdoms. We have memorandums of understanding instead that are just agreements on expectations on polyface, expectations on them, duration of this agreement. And basically, they craft their own businesses. Suddenly now, I'm not providing jobs. All I have to do is provide a germination tray and vet bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, entrepreneurial young people to sprout their fiefdom that fits with the umbrella and fits on the seed tray. Here's the deal, though. It takes time to do that. It takes time to develop and to know the relationships and develop the gifts and talents so that people can exercise their full gifts and talents. That takes time. It can't be just done with a little ad in the newspaper. But the result is that we actually have, instead of a group of questionably loyal people, we have a group of self-actualized, self-respected, self-empowered, autonomous, fiefdom entrepreneurs. And that's cool. That's very cool. Being honoring. All right, number four. Equity is non-physical. Equity is non-physical. The benchmark of truth is that a good farm, the equity in the farm should be in management, information, and service, not in infrastructure, and do I dare even say land. Land, as you know, has gone exorbitantly high. And so it's very difficult now for young people to be able to get in. The average farmer is almost 60 years old. When young people can't get into an economic sector of an economy, when young people can't get in, old people can't get out. So both generations are stuck. So if we're going to have fluidity, what we have to have is a way to drop the capitalization cost. And one of the ways to do that is to make information management dense farms where the equity is management information and customers. It's all about why, not how, as we developed models that allow us to leverage equity that doesn't have to be borrowed from a bank. Number five, innovation is empowered. When you go onto the farm or food system, one of the things that I couldn't help but thinking as I was looking at those images, and I'm just looking at incredible innovation, innovation of thought, innovation of practice, innovation of collaboration, innovation of modeling, from inventing proper machines and technology to inventing distribution networks to inventing marketing techniques. I mean, innovation is empowered. Is that what it looks like? Is it encouraged? And so what this requires is embryonic access. Rather than being negative toward innovation, a truthful benchmark, a farm or food system, is one that actually embraces and encourages innovation. But you know, innovation is very disturbing. You don't have to read very many business books to find out innovation is very, very disturbing. And so change is scary. You know, we're hardwired not to like change. We're hardwired to be negative. You know, somebody presents us an idea, ah, you know, it won't work, it won't work. That's, that comes naturally. I mean, that's why we call them stoplights and not go lights. We, you know, we, it's easy to complain and say no and it won't work and whatever. One of the most famous ways 
to make sure the status quo stays the same is to create a bureaucracy. And a bureaucracy is inherently non-innovative. So one of the ways that, you know, on our farm, we've developed this kind of an empowerment of innovation is with portable lightweight infrastructure. This kind of goes with the one before where we have lower capitalization costs and we use innovation with portable infrastructure. We have stuff today that grandpa would have given his eye teeth to head. You know, years ago, people would come to the farm and you'd hear these stories would come back. You know, we went to this farm. It was like grandpa's farm. You know what? I get up on my hind legs and go crazy now when people say that. I don't let them say this is like grandpa's farm. Grandpa would have given his eye teeth for things like stainless steel, plastic pipe, water pumps, a little diesel powered four wheel drive tractor with a hydraulic loader on it, a chipper shredder, uh, transit mixed concrete, rural electrification, potable water pumped under pressure or gravity fed in a pipe, nursery shade cloth. I mean, if you wanted to build a portable pastured chicken shelter 80 years ago for a thousand chickens, why you couldn't have moved it with all the mules in the county because you'd have had to build it out of eight by eight timber frame construction. But you simply couldn't make tinker toy style wood. Today with bandsaw mills, we can now mill a 30 foot log into half inch by one inch lath for tinker toy portable shelters covered with shade cloth. I mean, this is cool. See, this is really cool. And that's empowered innovation to try something new. I find it amazing today that right now, since January 1 of last year of 2013, now we're going on almost two years of this, one in every four pigs in the U.S. born has died from epidemic porcine viral diarrhea. Always got to have this nice big name. It's brand new, never had it before in the history of civilization. I've already decided if there's anything worse than diarrhea, it's got to be viral diarrhea. <laughs> but these pigs are dying and it has the whole industry reeling. Oh no, what do we do? The pork prices are going up. And it's a real big problem. The only reason pork prices haven't gone up any faster than they have is because grain prices are falling. So we're not seeing that quite as, as drastic as we would otherwise. But the population is really under siege here. 25% of all baby pigs for the last two years, basically, have died. And you know what? I haven't heard one single scientist in the industry, nobody from the U.S. duh, nobody from the tax land grant universities, nobody has dared to ask, I wonder if we should put 10,000 pigs in one house. <laughs> you can't ask the question. See, because the orthodoxy of the day demands that that's the paradigm. And so a benchmark of truth is a food system that really embraces heretics and really embraces the lunatic fringe. See, a lot of people have the misnomer that in my community, you know, neighbor farmers kind of hang on the fence and say, oh, I wish I could have a farm like that. They don't. They call us bioterrorists. <laughs> I was called a typhoid Mary because they really believe that our outdoor chickens are going to rub beak and waddle with the indigo bunny or a, a robin who's then going to fly over to the Tyson chicken house and make all those birds sick 
and the whole planet's going to starve to death and we can't feed the world because my chickens commiserated with a red-winged blackbird in our field, took it over to the science-based Tyson chicken houses. That's the orthodoxy of the day. When we talk about an empowered innovation, I mean a system that actually does embrace out-of-the-box thinkers. People who have the audacity to say, you know, if I have a sick animal, could it be my fault? <laughs> I mean, the orthodoxy of is an animal gets sick that's pharmaceutically disadvantaged. <laughs> I just haven't used the right stuff. Or if a tomato has a fungus on it, well, I just didn't use the right chemical. Couldn't be because I didn't have the right soil or the right whatever. It's got to be the chemical du jour, you know. And so when I say empowered innovation, I mean empowered innovation. Let's just be able to experiment. Number six, benchmark of truth, the food and farming system should increase the commons, not decrease the commons. I call this my whosoever will clause. Whosoever will. In other words, could everybody do this? Is this open to everybody? What if everyone did this? What would things look like? And this is where I go down my rabbit trail of the need for ponds. If you're going to irrigate surface catchment ponds, back to P.A. Yeoman's Water for Every Farm, the Australian, ponds rather than aquifer or public water irrigation. If we, for the last 70 years, had taken all the money that's gone into Los Alamos in New Mexico and spent it instead using the bonanza of petroleum to carve high terrain catchments in all the valleys in New Mexico, today New Mexico would be drought-proof and flood-proof and would be in Eden. That's the truth. In fact, if you go there and ask people that study these kinds of things, they say that centuries ago, the place had tons and tons of beaver ponds. If you think about how many beaver ponds there were in the U.S. 600 years ago, we've got a long ways to go to bring back. These were not big TVA projects. Lewis Bromfield said the answer to the flooding in the Mississippi is not Army Corps of Engineer dams on the Mississippi. It's already too late. You got too much volume and velocity. The answer is millions and millions of farm ponds like big giant cow hoof prints up in the highlands all around to collectively decentralize the water and stop that surface runoff and actually build the commons and hydrate the landscape and keep the base flow and the springs running in the summertime. And then you can irrigate from those strategically to use our big head and opposing thumbs, our creativity and our mechanical prowess to actually remediate the landscape and do an investment in one in thousand years to rehydrate the landscape. That increases the commons. And it's totally different than sticking pumps and straws in rivers and aquifers that if everybody sucks, there's nothing there eventually. <laughs> if everybody sucks on the straw, there eventually won't be any water there. I don't know what you guys are thinking about. So what this means is that the truth is that our activity on the landscape should be fundamentally additive rather than extractive. Let me give you an example. I'm not opposed to alcohol fuel, 
But I want you to consider what a difference it would be if we didn't have a Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms or Prohibition and hadn't had Prohibition and all the little stills were still allowed to exist and that pesky little alcohol button on the Model T Ford were still in the dashboard of whatever today's Model T were. And instead of having huge government-subsidized massive alcohol plants, instead we had hundreds of thousands of little backyard outfits that were carefully integrated with an animal, perennial, annual, animal, manure, compost, carbon-centric rotation so that we had a democratized, decentralized kind of energy system. That is a whole different picture of alcohol fuel than a massive multi-million dollar plant that by gum, we built that, and you know what? Whether it depletes the soil, makes a dead zone the size of New Jersey and the Gulf of Mexico, impoverishes the neighborhood, or even if we don't need it, we're going to continue to use it because we built it. What happens is the bigger the toy, the bigger the emotional enslavement to use the toy. And if we have lots of little itty-bitty toys all scattered around, suddenly it completely changes the model. Ultimately, increasing the commons is part of building the community. And so what we need is a neighbor-friendly system that runs on handshakes rather than legal documents. Fundamentally, it's one that runs on trust. One that runs on trust. All right, all right. Number seven, benchmark of truth, easy entrance and exit. It's easy to get in and easy to get out. This is fundamental for preserving multi-generational, successional types of things. This requires low capitalization. Think about it. If you want to grow one chicken for Tyson, if you want to grow one chicken for Tyson, what's the first thing you've got to do? You've got to build a $500,000 confinement house. Folks, that's hard to get in. If you want to raise a direct marketed pastured chicken for your community, you can start with a little salvage lumber, almost no cost, portable shelter that you move around on the pasture. That's what I'm talking about. Low capitalization. This lowers the risk thresholds. How locked in are you to your paradigm? Being able to easily enter and exit. Think about our single-use capital-intensive infrastructure denies fluidity in the system. I mean, think about it. Some young person goes off to a grass farming conference and learns how to, from a confinement dairy to a grass-based dairy. And the young person comes all back, all excited, you know, and says, and grandpa's, you know, coming out of the barn. She says, grandpa, grandpa, you know, it's the 18-year-old daughter, right? She desperately wants to stay there on the family farm, but it's tough these days with all the vet bills and the grain costs and, and the manure and the, and the downer cows and the lack of fertility and, and all the stuff that economies of scale and orthodoxy create. And she says, hey, grandpa, I went to this conference. You know what? We can just, we can forget the silo, you know, the bankruptcy tube. We... We, we can just, with a little bit of electric fence, we can let these cows just run out here in packs. We can move them every day from one paddock to another one. They will harvest their own feed. They'll fertilize it. We don't have to haul manure. They'll poop on the pasture. And she gets about to this point, and Grandpa says, what? 
Don't you understand? I spent my whole lifetime borrowing money, bending rebar, pouring concrete, building this dairy. And you just gonna, you just gonna walk away from all that? Whose child are you? And And that, dear people, is the trap, the danger of capital-intensive, highly depreciable, single-use infrastructure. That's the danger of it. Several years ago, we did an economic analysis on our farm. The average farm in America, it takes $4 worth of depreciable infrastructure. I'm not even talking about land here. I'm just talking about buildings and equipment. $4 worth of buildings and equipment to generate $1 in annual gross sales. That's the average in America. On our farm, you ready for this? It's 50 cents to a dollar. It's 800% difference. Folks, there's nothing to buy because our equity is in management, customers, and information. See? And you don't have to borrow that from a bank. And it's portable. And you can take it from one farm to the other. Suddenly now, you can divorce the farm from the land and you can move the farm around wherever you want to with these low capital, portable infrastructure. Easy to get in, easy to get out. Number eight, consistent across all fields, spiritual, ethical, economic, and ecological. The model has to be consistent. Let me give you a couple of examples. Think about multi-speciation. It's the ecological pattern. There is no monospeciation in nature. It's all multi-speciation. So it meets the ecological pattern. Multi-speciation creates economic synergy. When they say you can't feed the world your way, let me tell you something. The most rudimentary, novice, beginning, multi-speciated, multi-dimensional backyard garden is more productive per square yard than the most amazing Monsanto monoculture you can imagine. That's the truth. So you have economic synergy. And then what better way to accentuate the religious or spiritual truth of allowing lots of different beings to express their unique gifts and talents in an ecosystem. Ultimately, when we have a system that moves us toward faith rather than fear, it's a consistent benchmark of truth. Number nine, a benchmark of truth is that it must be appropriate in both developed and undeveloped countries. It must be a viable model that works both in developed and undeveloped countries. This has come to me over time just slowly as I've had visitors from Africa and Bosnia and other places. And many times our farm is the only little excursion that they have into something other than what the other foundations that are paying for their trip are taking them to, which are, of course, Tyson chicken houses and that sort of thing. And from tribal chiefs to city mayors to whatever, they come and they look at what we've got and they just stop and they say, this is what our people need. And it has struck me over the years, here we are in this, you know, sophisticated techno glitzy culture. And we believe that what we've got is incredibly viable. It is, but it's incredibly affirming to know that it's the most viable option for undeveloped peoples, for hungry peoples, for economically disadvantaged cultures. 
a Tyson chicken house is not nearly as appropriate compared to, for example, pastured poultry. Now they've got to make certain adjustments, like in China, a guy that did it built his egg mobiles big enough so he put a honeymoon suite in the back because their biggest problem was two-legged thieves. And so they had the chickens in the front and a honeymoon suite in the back. couple lived there in the summer and as security. That was cool. So you make general adaptations. But essentially, the idea of portable infrastructure where I could take all of the control electric netting for chickens and pigs and cows on our farm and put it all in checked luggage, that can be done very simply, very cheaply. It's very cool, very cool. Think about how much easier it is to build a compost pile than it is to depend on chemicals for fertility. When we have a local carbon-centric on-site self-reliance fertility program, suddenly that is not dependent on shipping in from foreign places. The answers are always from the inside out, not the outside in. And when we empower the inside out, it's appropriate in both developed and undeveloped countries. Finally, number 10, it scales up as well as down. If it only scales down, I'm not sure it actually can feed the world. If it only scales up, then it's a pretty exclusive kind of program. It's not size discriminatory. Now, one of the ways to do this is to have animals do the work. So, you know, on our farm, we use the piggerators to turn the compost. And that allows us to use appreciating infrastructure instead of having depreciating compost turners, petroleum and tractors, and all the labor to turn it. Instead, you know, we use pigs. All of them have a sign on their forehead that says, we'll work for corn. So we just put the corn in. It ferments under the cows tromping around on it. Then we put the pigs in. The pigs seek the fermented corn, and they aerate it and turn it. And all that turning is done, and then we spread it back on the fields. And the pigs are doing the work, so we're using appreciating infrastructure structure that doesn't need to oil change. They don't need spare parts. They don't need minimum wage. You know, what a retirement program, when you're done with them, you eat them, you know? So it's a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful recycling program. It can be done as profitably. Here's the deal. The profit potential is size neutral because we haven't had to get enough volume to replace the things that rot, rust, and depreciate. Marketing. It should be able to scale both directions. I mean, when you have a food model in which only tractor trailers can come to the loading dock, that's only a scale-up kind of program. I had the, the 10 direct report VPs from Costco come to the farm a couple years ago, one of their little jaunts, and they were wondering, how do we get your kind of stuff at Costco? And so we had a nice tour, and, and as we were eating our little sack lunches there, they asked me, I said, well, okay, so what do you think? And how can we get your kind of stuff in our place? And I said, well, for starters, you need a policy in which a truck smaller than a tractor trailer can back up to your loading dock end of the discussion. I couldn't even conceive of a thing where a truck smaller than a tractor trailer could back up to the loading dock. So marketing needs to be scaled where we can have small scale access. This will require, of course, collaboration. I'm out of time, so I'm not going to elaborate on what we're doing with our uh, metropolitan buying clubs and our collaborative arrangements. But I'll just say this. I think that one of the ways to create scale is to use the Internet in Internet marketing, which doesn't require bricks, mortars, and cashiers, which have an inherent overhead built into them. So when we aggregate electronically and maintain our inventory electronically, then we can actually create economies of scale, we can move seamlessly up and down because 
the internet and the website and an electronic shopping cart and aggregation is seamless whether you're very small or whether you're very large. That's a way to do it. Insurance is a huge one. It took us three years to get on a truck to be able to service a VA hospital that wanted our pork tenderloins. But in order to do that, you know, the first thing we had to do was to have $3 million worth of product liability. We've got to start self-insuring. This is a place where we really need to work on something. You know, we, we had a customer that wanted us to be on a Cisco truck. So I, well, how do we get on a Cisco truck? He says, well, uh, I'll send you the protocols. I got 17 pages of requirements. And the first one was that we had to have a metal magnet that could pull metal shards through 12 inches of ground pork or beef. Well, in our little community slaughterhouse that we happen to co-own, a little federal inspected facility with 18 employees, if we put a magnet that powerful in, all our workers would be stuck to it <laughs> from their belt buckles. You know, they all NASCAR race guard guys. <laughs> there wouldn't even be any place to put it in the plant. Mandatory chlorine. When I had one of the uh, representatives come down, I asked her, I said, well, what if we could show by empirical test that we don't even have the pathogens that you require chlorine to stop? There was this pregnant one-minute pause. She said, we never think about that. We just assume that the product is toxic coming out the farm. It's either chemicalized, it's pathogen, it's toxic, it's got salmonella, E. coli, whatever. That's the assumption. The idea that we could actually have clean food on a farm doesn't even cross their mind. And so the protocols, the SOPs, the GAPs, the insurance requirements, the underwriters, and all the handshake backroom deals that they agree on on the golf course is prejudicial against small-scale thing. And I'll conclude, I wouldn't be fair to myself or you guys if I didn't at least rail for a minute on why food safety regulations are so bad is because they all mandate infrastructure instead of empirical science to test. When we've had our battles and battles and battles over the years, and it's amazing, these guys stand there and they say, well, you need a certain amount of light bulbs and you need a certain amount of stainless steel and temperatures in your water and that stuff. And we get our chicken tested at a lab and we're 25 times cleaner than what's gone through all their protocol and gorged through 40 chlorine baths in the processing plant. And they look at you and say, well, that's not all we're interested in. I said, well, what else are you interested in? Well, how many bathrooms do you have? Well, we're 50 feet from our house and mom's house. She's got two. I've got two. You know, we just, and, and if I want to go number one, I step behind the tractor and go right there. I mean, what are you going to do about that? Do we want clean food or do we want to sell stainless steel and petroleum? That's the question. If I can gut a chicken that's clean in my kitchen sink, as hits your benchmark, oh, oh, that's right, they don't have any benchmarks. You know, so I suggested to them, look, let's buy an R2-D2 machine. We can just swab, stick it in there. You know, it, it's just empirical. Federal inspector says he thinks a minute. He says, hmm, yeah, that would work. But then I'd be out of a job. No, I wouldn't be in favor of that. So I find it amazing that we've come to the point in our culture where it's perfectly safe to feed your kids Twinkies, Cocoa Puffs, and Mountain Dew but it's a hazardous substance to get or sell or buy or feed your kids raw milk and Aunt Matilda's homemade pickles and quiche 
and compost-grown tomatoes. That's pretty despicable. That's why I'm such a promoter of the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, because I think that this whole processing food safety issue is becoming far, far worse, fast, better. I don't know if you're watching the Food Safety Modernization Act, but they've already now uh, run down the E. coli. You know, there are good E. coli and bad E. coli. We have E. coli inside us. You know, you got E. coli right there inside of you. You better be glad because if you didn't, you couldn't digest your food. We are 85% non-human. Three trillion bacteria inside of us and they're going to conferences and having school board meetings and whatever, you know. I don't know if we're throwing bombs at each other or not. I think they do that when we send down some monosodium glutamate, you know, some unpronounceable something or other. You know, I'm with Michael Pollan, you know, we probably shouldn't be eating anything that wasn't available before 1900. And, and we, we can all be thankful that hot dogs were developed in 1890 at the 1890 World's Fair, you know, just kind of. But the point is that we are not sterile beings. As Mark McAfee, the raw milk producer in California says, we are bacteriosapiens. And if we could take an electron microscope over the room here, we'd see, you know, your breath in front of yours and I'm breathing what you just exhaled and who knows what the front row's getting here, you know. I mean, it's all over the place. It's in us, around us and all that, which is why we need to have the freedom to be able to choose the food of our choice from the source of our choice. And if we had that, if we had a food emancipation proclamation in this country, in short order, all of us would put Tyson's out of business in a heartbeat. That's the truth. So, there you have the benchmarks of truth and they are evolving I'm not saying this is definitive, but it's something I've been thinking about as we look at trying to articulate what are those practical things that you can look at, you can measure, and you can say, all right, this is right and this is not right. This is right, this is not right. And I think we all need to really become idea and practical demonstration salespeople, marketers to our customers, our friends, our family to be able to articulate what it is that makes us different. We're not the same. We're not Tyson. We're not just a wacko movement. We are absolutely the heart and soul of an indigenous, truthful, honorable, sacred system. That's our repository. We're responsible for holding on to it. And I suggest that we're responsible for creating the legacy and keeping it going for our children and our children's children. Now, may all of your carrots grow long and straight. May your radishes be large and not pithy. May tomato blossom end rot affect your Monsanto neighbor's tomatoes. May the coyotes be struck blind at your pasture chickens. May all of your culinary experiments be palatably delectable. May the rain fall gently on your fields. The wind be always at your back. Your children rise and call you blessed. And may we all make our nest a better place than we inherited. Thank you so much for letting me visit with you. Thank you.
wraps up the edited talk of Joel Salatin that we recorded at the Slow Money Gathering last November. And it was such an incredible opportunity to be present with the leading thinkers in sustainable food. You can find all of those videos on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash user slash X environmental. But in the show notes of this episode, we're going to include links directly to the talks of each of these uh, wonderful speakers because if you want to find out more information about the full content of their talks that was not edited down, um, you can watch the whole thing. And it also gives you a great sense of the incredible audience that was there as well. And this place was packed to the brim with people, not just our, your regular run-of-the-mill folks. These are There are billionaires in the audience. There are people looking to spend some serious money on investing in these ideas. It was really incredible. The atmosphere and the energy was just very, very palpable. I, I really like those three questions that Woody asked them beginning. What would the world be like if we invested 50% of our profits within 50 miles where we live? What if companies gave 50% of their profits away? And what if there were 50% more organic matter in the soil? I think those three questions were really what the conference was all about. It's about keeping local, rethinking what it means to be local, and rethinking where our food comes from and understanding that it's really important to have these principles in our daily life. Yeah, it, it takes me back to something that Mary Berry was talking about in regards to the culture of agriculture that we now have and how that reflects our broader culture of efficiency and substituting fossil fuels for knowledge and ability to understand the land. And I think that's absolutely true of our financial culture as well. We have a financial culture that has evolved to take advantage of particular beliefs that I think have been made available by abundant fossil fuels that things like massive amounts of energy return on energy investment that surplus energy has created our expectations for what our financial system can do. And that's created a scale of finance of big banks and big organizations that in the words of Joel Salatin, he has an example where he looked at the data for a farm that works with Tyson and maybe, you know, like uh, has chickens or, or something like that. And they have to spend $4 for fixed infrastructure for every single dollar of gross sales that they make. So they have to build, you know, giant silos and massive hen houses and have huge tractors. And that kind of financial dependency can only be done through these large mega banks like Bank of America and JP Morgan, because they're the only ones who can take on this kind of risk. And so when we try to farm at that kind of scale, it reinforces that financial relationship that can only happen at that level of scale, that can only happen because we have so many abundant fossil fuels. Whereas Joel Salatin is really, in my view, talking about farming for a low net energy world, the kind of world that we're gonna have, especially in the second half of the 21st century, where he's able to only spend a half cent to generate a dollar of sales from his farm. It's the complete opposite ratio of what exists in these extremely large factory farms that our food infrastructure is used to using. And when the guys at Costco come by Jill Saladin's place and they can't imagine how they can't bring a tractor trailer truck in there in order to get all the food that he's growing and take it to market, that shows you the kind of shift that we're gonna go through in the coming decades. Yeah, doesn't that imagery of not being able to back up a big truck to your, your store kind of put this whole thing into perspective? If we, if you don't, if you take away those large trucks and you have to 
to rely on small ones, then it really makes it harder for those big businesses and those huge international shipping companies to even work. You know, it kind of brings me back to that point that Marco was making about Upton Sinclair, the quote that he had about it's hard to make a man understand something if his job depends on not understanding it. I think that was so salient because people love to make money and they love to exploit the commons. And that's basically where our economy gets most of its get up and go and, and able to function at, at the high level it does is the commoditization of the commons. Because we've privatized those natural resources that belong to everyone on this planet by giving them to businesses and letting people claim them by private owned businesses, we've given over this right as humans to businesses and private organizations to let them commoditize things that we on this planet are probably entitled to. You know, I think that I should have right to the air that I breathe and the water that I drink. These are natural things that every person on this planet is entitled to. I mean, Justin, what do you think that you're entitled to the air that you breathe? Is that something that you should have to pay a commodity for? What we see in today's world under the ideology of neoliberalism, of the ideology that if we price every single ecosystem service, every single type of resource that we use, it can put it into a marketplace that can then make it more efficient. But what that also does, in addition to monetizing nature, is it makes it much easier for ownership structures and distribution of all of these assets to then fall into private hands that don't necessarily have the better interest of the commons at in their mind. And so we very much see that with our farming infrastructure that we have in the kind of you know, externalities uh, that it would create. We did an episode way back in episode number 13 with David Montgomery talking about dirt, the erosion of civilizations, his book on the challenges of agriculture uh, that we face with the way we do it now. And we're literally strip mining the soil and shipping it down the Mississippi River. That kind of stuff takes a really long time to come back because it's volcanoes and rocks and erosion that creates the soil. And it's like a gold mine because it's extremely valuable, but we're just strip mining it just like blowing the tops off of mountains to get coal. That's basically the strategy of our agriculture. And it may not show up for five years. It may not show up for 15 years, but eventually you reach a point where previous civilizations have done the same thing with, uh, you know, Northern Africa and Rome. It used to be the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. And now places like Libya are a desert and they've absolutely overused the agricultural resources there. That uh, creates a really dangerous dynamic when we think about a future where already we're going to have constrained food production. You look at places like Brazil, where there's a massive drought in Sao Paulo, and I personally do not see how that uh, situation can be resolved for a metro area of tens of millions of people to essentially run out of water, and they're reaching a desperation mode. And we see these places like California facing massive droughts as well that are the source of so much agriculture in North America. Um, it's a really tough situation. And who knows how those situations will resolve. But we're looking at a period of several decades um, that will face even more population growth and resource constraint around our agricultural ability for agriculture to expand because of climate change. And those situations will become even more challenged. I think what it comes down to is two different points. And one of them is that business drives much of this change in the climate that we see and much of the environmental exploitation. And that is simply around the fact 
that people are greedy. People love to make money. For success in our current culture, greed runs that whole show. So if you want to be rich and powerful, you are taking lots of money and lots of resources onto yourself and making sure that you and your family are going to be great forever. But this is such a myopic short-term view of the world and of the planet that it, it gets in the way of the human race. You know, the planet's going to be here. We come back to this point a lot. The planet's going to be here. It's got a long, long, long life ahead of it. It's the human race that's that's in trouble. You know, if you, if we keep going down the same paths, I mean, there's no more human race. The planet's going to be great. Humans are not going to be able to be here anymore. And that's going to be a really sad thing. There's one last point I wanted to touch on before we close out today's episode. And Seth, you mentioned that there is a lot of uh, billionaires and millionaires in the audience who use this slow money event in order to scout out the next social food enterprises that they can put money into. And there's definitely potentially downsides to that kind of dynamic. But I think it also shows how our cultural values change the way that we want to allocate our money and our financial resources. Because if you said to people 15 years ago, you know, go and find local farmers who are doing sustainable organic, uh, you know, meat or produce or something, you would have been like, are you kidding me? I'm not going to invest in something like that. But now there's a large number of people like Mark Evangelisti who've been inside the financial institutions of the mainstream and they see the dangerous dynamics that they not only thrive upon to stay alive, but also create through their investment decisions and they want to do things differently. And that says to me that our culture really is changing and it might look like there's a lot of um, people who don't get it, who don't understand the mainstream media, the corporate media and not really getting things. But there is this slow adjustment of culture. You even think about so money as an idea. And when we were at this gathering, people were saying, oh yeah, you know, at our last gathering, it was like half as many people. And the one before that, it was like half as many people. And so they do these gatherings every 12 to 18 months, you know, in five more years, there's so many people who are realizing that the food they're putting into their body is slowly killing them because of this mass industrial corporate food system and the way it operates, that there's going to be 2000 people at a slow money gathering. Or if there's not, there's going to be satellite gatherings all tuning in and watching the live stream. That's absolutely right. That, it gives me hope, you know, because we went to that degrowth conference in Germany and that thing was a massive explosion of people that was growing an enormous amount from the last one. It seems like people are starting to really wake up and get it. And that's a really exciting, important and hopeful thing for our future. Yeah, I, I know it can seem sometimes like there's a lot of people who don't and it's even easier to seem that way when there's so many excuses to stay home and on devices and on the internet where we're not interacting with the people around us. But I do see that more and more people are reaching that scenario that's like the opposite of what Marco Evangelisti was saying, where they've either lost their job or have seen the limitations in their paradigm and their livelihood no longer depends on it. So they're able to question it and really dig into it. And so I just wanted to highlight uh, two quick news items that really highlight how our culture is changing. And that's one from Australia that is reporting on the United States that half of America's shopping centers are predicted to close by 2030. It's saying the obituaries are being written for what has been an intrinsic part of American culture for half a century as the country's ubiquitous shopping malls face a slow, painful death. So over the next 15 years, roughly half of America's malls will die. So much when I was like going to high school and uh, 
what you do on the weekend is just like go to the mall and I would talk to people and be like, Hey, what'd you do this weekend? And be like, I went to the mall. I hung out there and now all those malls are dying. Well, Justin, you've already seen the writing for this on the wall with, with the like blockbuster and the movie rental places closing. I don't think there's any movie rental places around me right now. I I've, I've looked for them. I know that there, there's at least like three blockbusters I know of that have closed down around the area where I live. I, you know, retail stores are going to have a place in, in our world, but they're just going to become places where people go try things out. Best Buy is already like the biggest rental center in the world right now, right? And it's just going to become more of that. Yeah, exactly. And there's going to be, I think, a place where there's increasing online retail volume and then smaller specialty stores that have, like you said, the ability to try things out and see them before you buy them. And also uh, things that you can't find online that someone has handcrafted or made that's not on Etsy. Um, And so the malls are the dinosaurs. They're that leftover infrastructure. They're the dinosaurs bones that we still live in and see all around us. And we'll recognize more and more that they are just fossils of a culture that is dying. And it might seem like your mall is vibrant now, but in 10 more years, will that thing still be there? In my hometown, uh, the city council put in a lot of money to build this big, you know, showpiece mall. And it was going to be a whole beacon for the region and now it's abandoned and it's foreclosed on and that's just one example of many malls all across the United States that are in that same case and I hear so many stories of cities that had the exact same thing happen and it's just indicative of where we're at in the evolution of the United States into the future. Well, they can always just make them into bowling alleys. There is one last story I wanted to cover here that's also indicative of where the culture is going and I think this is a really good indication to me of unintended consequences and how you think you can get rich off of something, but you end up actually having to spend more in other places. This is a story that came out earlier in January about how cops are struggling to keep up with the huge demand in fracking well territory in places like North Dakota. And it's all about how the FBI is going to have to open a new crime unit and the county is going to have to build bigger jails because the population was so small before the shale gas boom that they had to um, that they didn't have these problems. The police department didn't have to be as big. They didn't have to police as much. They didn't really have to worry about crime. But now with this huge influx of people and all this money, there's drugs and crime like they'd never seen before. And so if you were using a rational cost-benefit analysis scenario and you were coming in and saying, hey, North Dakota, why don't you do this shale gas? You'll get rich. No one in the audience is going to think, oh, yeah, we're going to need massive jails. We're going to need to triple the size of our jails. We're going to need four times as many police officers and all of that. And so all that additional tax overhead is going to eat into the money we'll make. No one's going to say that. They might now, but they definitely wouldn't have five or seven years ago. So you can think that you're getting rich when really you're just building in bigger costs that you'll have to incur down the line. And that's why it's great that more people are deciding to put their money into sustainable food enterprises, because even though it's not making as much money as maybe a factory farm might appear to make, it's not creating bigger problems that we'll have to deal with later. Well, it's like the gold rush in the wild, wild west, right? Yeah. Everyone's going and trying to get make it rich and trying to cash in on all that gold that's in the ground. This this time around, it's liquid gold. And the towns suffer for it. You know, the sleepy little town of wherever North Dakota is is now becoming a metropolis because everyone wants to come there and get get rich on the gold. It's a common thing that happens and it'll it'll boom and bust and for the town will probably be a lot worse off than before uh, they struck it rich with the oil. So we've 
been very slow in putting out podcasts recently. We're doing a lot of structural adjustments to the extra environmentalist, exciting things happening on the way that even though it's a short-term pain in terms of putting out shows, it's long-term gain. And there's some avenues opening up that could completely revolutionize the show and extremely uh, improve the quality uh, by potentially bringing Seth and I closer together geographically. Um, But as we explore those avenues and see how things shape up, um, it's been pretty slow going for the last little bit. And so we greatly appreciate your patience and understanding as our listening audience. We've been really slow in sending out t-shirts and we just blasted out a new whole round of t-shirts to all of our people who've been donating and supporting the show. And you know what? If you're like, hey, those extra environmentalist guys, what are they doing? They're not putting out shows. They're not getting any of my donations. That's completely fine. We very much understand. And we look forward to the second half of this year when we're going to be able to pick up the pace quite a bit, I think. Uh, But for right now, we're just putting our uh, ducks in a row and making sure everything's in in really nice uh, condition for the future. But we have sent out t-shirts and copies of the Occupy Finance Handbook for anybody who donates more than $30. You're getting a t-shirt and Occupy Finance Handbook. And um, so we just wanted to thank some of those people who have been donating. We have some fantastic listeners out there who have sent in hard earned money to our show. And like Justin said, we have been slow on putting out the episodes, but things are going to change soon. We always say that, but you know, this time it might be really true. We're especially thankful for those people who have donated to the show recently. And this week we'd like to thank Eric from Massachusetts. We'd also like to thank Pete from North Carolina. We'd also like to thank Ekaterina from Toronto. Thanks so much. You're a great friend of the show. We really appreciate you listening. Yeah, we haven't been able to talk about how oil prices have fallen so much, but it's really interesting in seeing the new world of deflation that everyone's talking about and worried about of lower commodity prices, et cetera. And you go back to our shows with Nicole Foss from 2012 and with Richard Heinberg in early 2014, where we were talking about the financial bubble behind fracking and how all of these companies are not going to be able to sustain themselves financially because the numbers just don't work out. So I'll just play a a few clips from Richard Heinberg in 2013 and Nicole Foss in 2012 that perfectly describe our situation now. Almost none of these companies are actually making money right now on sales of product. I'm talking particularly here about the natural gas producers. It's a Ponzi scheme. They've paid a lot to lease millions of acres of land for drilling, and they've talked up the value of those leases by saying that we have 100 years of natural gas. And so now they're selling off those leases in order to make a profit and stay in business. Instead of making profit on selling natural gas, they're profiting from mergers and acquisitions and lease sales. And the industry is a financial bubble in the classic sense. It's like the real estate bubble of a few years back and the dot-com bubble a few years before that. And that bubble is popping. As we read that Shell, for example, is writing down $2 billion worth of shale assets that it purchased from some of these smaller companies, that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's happening with company after company. And this whole industry is ready to pop. I think we are going to see another crash 
backlash of energy prices, partly because this time Chinese demand is going to be falling. As the Chinese bubble bursts, China has been propping up commodity demand and therefore commodity prices for years. It's been a really, really major player. So as the bubble bursts there, we're going to see a large fall away in demand for commodities. And that's going to feed the falling demand from contracting economies in the developed world as well. And so, yeah, I mean, our show is moving along pretty slowly right now. But if you really want to find out about what's happening right now, just listen to our shows two years ago and you'll get a perfect picture of what's going on. We are that ahead of the times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but seriously, we've got a, a few great episodes coming up about slow money, and we've got plenty of interviews that we have recorded that we have yet to put out, and we've got a ton of new interviews um, that we're planning to record around tons of great books and authors. So that'll all be coming to you in 2015. Um, but yeah, thanks to everyone who's still supporting the show and sending in donations even when the episodes aren't coming out as frequently as they used to be. We're also going to have a great documentary series about the built environment with actually several years of work that have gone into this thing. So it's going to be pretty incredible. There are big things happening at The Extra Environmentalist. Thank you so much for sticking around. If you want to hear more episodes of The Extra Environmentalist, check out our website at extraenvironmentalist.com. Leave us a comment on one of your favorite episodes. Tell us what you think. Leave us a voicemail on our voicemail box which is online, so you can uh, leave us a mail anytime you feel like it. And that number is 919-701-XTRA, which is 9872. Find us on Stitcher Radio on YouTube, where you can listen to lots and lots of videos that we've been putting out lately. Join the conversation on Facebook and on Twitter, where you too can have a voice and, and hear what others are saying about the topics that you care most about. Thanks so much for listening. For all you out there who are waiting patiently next to your podcasting machines to hear the next Extra Environmentalist, we salute you. ago, on November 12, 2014, a little spacecraft operated by the European Space Agency made the first ever landing on a comet after a 10-year journey covering half a billion miles. And like millions of other people, not necessarily into astronomy and the study of the cosmos, I was just gobsmacked by what they did. The touchdown on the comet called 67P was part of the ongoing Rosetta mission, which is led by a multinational team of scientists. And together, they have extended humanity's 
reach into the cosmos, and by doing so, they have enhanced our understanding of our own planet. Now, why is this story relevant today, other than to demonstrate that Europe can actually do really impressive things? <laughs> well, because I think that this year, the global economy will face what we might call three Rosetta moments. Those major policy challenges, think about meteorites that are coming our way. They will, requ they will require decisions based on political courage, decisive action, and multilateral thinking, cooperation, a bit like those scientists demonstrated. But you know what? If we can catch a comet out in space with a 10 years lag and half a billion miles in between, sure we can address the policy challenges that we're facing right here on planet Earth. On the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we'll be hearing from Vandana Shiva about genetically modified organisms. That the militarized mind that gave us war chemicals continues to guide the shaping of our agriculture and food. It is war through another name. And because it's based on these external inputs, the agrichemicals, seeds, that have to be purchased, the GMO seeds, the non-renewable seeds, it can only survive as a monoculture. Economies, economic philosophies, and people have been changed in order to protect the innocent. This is Stagnet, the adventures of Detective Hedge Romer. I'm sitting in my desk in the office, watching the rain pelt against the window. The city always shimmers when it rains. I can hear it breathe. The cars whiz by. I feel alone, but the city holds me deep. It's one of those nights where I think anything can happen, even cheap oil. The pencil I've been holding has been spinning in my hands for about a minute now. I've been writing my memoir of my time in the fracking boom. Man, those are some great strip clubs. Footsteps at the door. Come in. She walked into the room, her long hair cascaded down her back, glittering like freshly pumped oil. She came from a lot of money. She must have had something to do with the central bank. Who are you? I yelled. I'm a friend, but you can just call me IMF for short. IMF, eh? I've heard about your kind. We've been needing a little bit of help. That's why I thought I'd see someone. Someone like you. Someone with some expertise. What kind of expertise are you looking for? I saw her eyes dart to the left and to the right, 
and then back to me. We've been dealing with some tough times. We've had a lot of models. How good do these models look? So many people have been staring at their assets that they missed the whole point. It's hard to keep your eyes on the ball when there's big assets floating around. All these assets are in trouble. They're not based on anything. And the challenge, you see, is that these models aren't working anymore. We said, hey, finance growth, make it bigger, get it up. And they can't anymore. None of these countries are working the same way. I saw her face drop as she said this. I knew she was telling the truth. I stammered, all countries have trouble keeping it up as they get older. She smiled softly. But this time it's different. You see, we keep thinking that the growth is gonna come back, and it never does. It keeps getting worse. In fact, it just keeps deflating faster and faster. What do you want from me? I need you to do some research. See why it's not working anymore. See why the deflation's happening. I knew this would be a job for the ages. I could tell from right then and there that I would do her job, and I would do it well. They told me where to find you, but they didn't tell me your name. What do they call you around here? On the oil patch, they call me Romer. My eyes got soft and glazy as I looked out the window into the rain. But for you, I glanced back over. You call me Hedge. Hedge Romer, huh? I think you're just the kind of guy for this job. I landed in the big city. My feet hit the ground, and I knew I was in the right spot. My contact in this place was a little guy named Pinky. Pinky Duvall. I walked into the local watering hole, and Pinky was there. Whew, what a hot day at work. Give me a Manhattan bartender. Coming right up. Great to see you, Pinky. Hey, you Pinky? Hey, what's it to ya? I've been looking for you all over. Who's asking? Oh, just a little bird told me I could find you here. Sounds like there's a little bird who's been tweeting too much. Everybody knows Twitter's overvalued. But let's get to the point here. I need information. If you want information, you shouldn't talk to Pinky. You should talk to the brain. I looked him up and down. The brain was a character of mythical proportions. I knew I'd come to the right place. The answer's this, but just don't interrupt me with any of that silly music. I said cut it out, see? That's enough of that. Now, you must As I found out later, the brain was actually the Pinky's dog who lived in the back room, who'd been selling mortgage-backed securities since the crash in 2008. I followed Pinky into the back room. Music quieted down. <clears throat> we walked into a soft space filled with warm light. There were a bunch of dogs sitting around a table, cigars in their mouth, drinks at the table, all of them playing poker, looking very intense. It was almost like a painting. Pinky called out, Hey Brain, get someone here to see ya. Brain looked up from his cards, a mean look in his eye. <laughs> Pinky looked over at me with a look of fear in his eyes. Brain wants to know whether he can trust you or not. You can trust me, Brain. I'm here for information. Brain says, how does he know you're not from the Department of Justice? You're right, Brain. Though I doubt Eric Holder would investigate. You better throw him in that room. It looked like things were dark for me. The room closed down, and I couldn't see anything. There was a window in the corner. The bars shined in the moonlight. The rain came down hard. I listened at the door to hear if I could find out what was going on. Pinky whispered to Brain. Hey, Brain, you think we should tell him anything, or should we off him? I don't want to off him that way. That's disgusting. I don't like using toilets like that. No. Still, though, I think he knows too much about what's going on in the oil fields and how we're financing it. He smells like oil. I knew this investigation into economic growth would lead me into deep places. I didn't know it would lead me into this deep well. Ladies and gentlemen, 
You have been listening to Stagnant, The Adventures of Hedgeroma. Tune in to our regularly scheduled programming time to learn whether our illustrious hero can escape from this quagmire of economic malaise.